We have um, been thinking together over these last um, days about the nature of this amazing story that keeps getting told, uh, returned to uh, each and every December in Christian communities uh, all over this world. And we've been thinking in particular about the nature of Christmas blessings. I'm not talking about the kind of blessings that you can pick up uh, at the mall or uh, spot on Amazon, but even deeper blessings, even greater, more enduring blessings than those which are popularly peddled and, frankly, sometimes enjoyed. In that particular section of his great Sermon on the Mount that we call the Beatitudes, Jesus introduces us to the specific kind of blessings I'm talking about to those endowments of God's grace that come sometimes in unexpected ways to unexpected people, but which bring with them a gift of blessing that transcends just about anything that could be bought or sold. And as I was looking at the Christmas story this year, I was particularly struck by how vividly these particular blessings were displayed in the lives of the people in, the, in, in that original Christmas tale. How much the, the original folks that gathered around the manger, in a sense, were exhibitors of uh, this kind of blessing, uh, this endowment of God's uh, grace. And I think we stand a lot to learn from paying attention to that. Um, I think we see the consistency of the way God works in the fact that Jesus is talking about um, the very same things in his public ministry 30, 33 years later that God actually worked through at the very beginning of it all. That, That God is still, in a sense, blessing people, but in the particular ways that get enfleshed in the Beatitudes and in the lives of the people around um, the manger. I want you to think about that and what that might mean for you tonight, Uh, how you might become blessed in the way that we're uh, seeing described in the Scriptures. Consider uh, consider your life um, alongside of Mary this evening. That's my particular invitation. You saw the beautiful painting of her, the sketch of her that Dale Olson did out on the narthex and that we have uh, here behind me. I want you to really think tonight about the witness of the life of this woman, Mary, uh, whose belly carried the Savior of the world, uh, through whose belly the Savior uh, that accounts for our being here tonight uh, came into this world in the first place. I want you to think about Mary alongside of the famous declaration that her son would one day make, perhaps thinking of his mom, in these words, blessed, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Say that with me. Blessed are they which do, those which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Say that one more time. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Do you understand those words? Uh, Do they make sense to you? Do you see how Mary's life illustrates these words? Do you see how this can be true for you? 
To begin to try and go into those questions and seek out some answers together, I, w- I want to note that there is a fair amount of hungering and thirsting that goes on around Christmas time. You've probably seen that. There's a lot about hunger and thirst in the whole cultural experience of Christmas. We eat and we drink this time of year more than any other time of the year. That's why we have the New Year's resolutions that we do, right? I'm cutting that stuff out. I've got to make up for that. Um, hungering and thirsting after the succulences of this time is just one of the elements of the season. We, we also become, in a sense, kind of like one of those Pac-Man characters. Raise your hand if you remember Pac-Man. Okay, raise your hand down. Raise your hand if you have no idea who Pac-Man is. Very good. Pac-Man. We become like that little snapping critter. We sort of snap our way through the catalog or through the online site or through the um, mall uh, trying to, 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 to eat up the next dot on our Christmas list, right? With our creditors snapping at us right from behind. Um, and we're just turning and turning and turning and turning, trying to get it all done, trying to complete the, the consumption of, of the season. Uh, we, we hunger, many of us, to find the right gift for him or for her or from all of them, uh, and, and we're, just, we're seized often by this kind of aching concern. We're not going to be able to address that need. We thirst to hear those blessed words on Christmas morning, well done, good and faithful shopper. Well done. We hunger and thirst a lot uh, during the Christmas time. In fact, I, I noticed the, the movies are even indicative of this. Why, why is it that Twilight is so immensely popular? I, I've asked myself many, many times. Uh, and, then, and it hit me. You know, this is a story of werewolves and vampires. And what's the basic condition of werewolves and vampires? They've got this perpetual haunting appetite, right? That they just can't seem to satisfy. We recognize ourselves in them. This yearning, this aching, this longing for something we wish could be satisfied. Um, I, I saw this, this, this close-up um, through a, a wonderful um, writing that uh, was supplied by Mark Buchanan, a particularly wonderful author that I read uh, often. And in his... Um, in his book, Things Unseen, Living with Eternity in Your Heart, Buchanan suggests that one of the most defining characteristics of modern life is our shared appetite for the next thing. For the next thing. We're continually on the hunt today for the next luxury, uh, for the next uh, gadget, uh, for the next job, for the next adventure, for the next experience, for the next passion, for the next love. On the one hand, this is an immensely uh, adrenaline-filled, exciting, marvelous way of life. But on the other hand, it has this miserable side effect. Because obsessed as we become with acquiring and consuming the next thing, and our society gives us so many of those next things, we slowly lose the ability to truly enjoy, to taste, to be thankful for what we have right now. And in this book that Buchanan writes, he he describes an encounter he had with this truth in his own family's life. 
When my kids first got to that age when the essence of Christmas becomes the day of getting, I, I will never forget what happened, he said. There were mounds of gifts beneath our tree, and our son led the way in that favorite childhood and, more subtly, adult game, How Many Are For Me. Have you ever played that game? Have you ever poked around the pile of presents at the bottom wondering how many are for me? But the telling moment came Christmas morning, writes Buchanan, when the gifts were handed out. The children ripped through them, shredding and scattering the wrappings like jungle plants before a well-wielded machete. Love that image. Each gift they opened was beautiful. There was an intricately laced dress that Grandma Christie had sewn by hand. There was an exquisitely detailed model car that Uncle Rob had found at a specialty store over on Robson Street in Vancouver. There was a finely bound and a gorgeously illustrated collection of children's classics that Aunt Leslie had sent along. And the children, says Buchanan, looked at each of these gifts briefly. Then their interest quickly faded. And then they put the gift aside in order to move on to, you know what the answer is, the next thing. The next thing. And when the ransacking was finished, says Buchanan, My son, standing amidst a tumultuous sea of boxes and bright crumpled paper and exotic trappings, asked plaintively, Is this all there is? Is this all there is? I think it's it's fashionable to say that the problem here is is materialism. You know, you'll hear that at Christmas time, often from preachers, that the most significant problem we've got in America today is we're just way too materialistic, and Christmas is emblematic of that. Our main problem, people will say, is that people hunger and thirst after material possessions. They value things too much. But I don't think that's the major problem, actually. I don't, I can see why materialism can become problematic. I just don't think it's our main issue. Actually, I think most people value things too little. The book of Genesis clearly says that God made things, right? He could have created this wispy world this transparent pass-through world, he instead created this very substantive, succulent, uh, exciting, interesting, multi-sided, multicolored world. He made this world, and he pronounced it good. Good. I think that God intended for us to enjoy 
all of the beauty and the creativity and the fragrance and the texture of the world that he made. I imagine God stood in Eden as the first human beings walked through it, their eyes agog, like a parent does on Christmas morning when the children come in bright-eyed and wide open, looking at the splendor and the abundance of all that grace has provided to them. In fact, one of the meanings of the biblical word righteousness, this righteousness that we're called to hunger and thirst after, one of the meanings of it, and the word in the Greek is dikaiosune, the meaning is that which is good. Righteousness is that which is good. When Jesus says, therefore, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled, one conceivable, I think, realistic translation of that statement is that blessed are those who have an appetite for what's good, right? Who really have an appetite and to enjoy and to, and to savor what is good. But this is precisely the challenge, I think, for, for a lot of us. We're like those kids in Buchanan's story. We're just so consumed. I find it in myself. So consumed with rushing on to the next thing, the next package, the next experience, the next conversation, the next relationship, the next email, the next... That, 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 that we don't even notice what's happening here. We're, we're thinking about what was not in the last box. We're disappointed by what didn't happen back here. And we forget how to really taste and to truly savor and to actually be nourished by the good that's in our hands right now. I mean, right now. Tonight. Don't let that be true of you this Advent season. Don't Fly past the holiday lights. Make sure you get out and drive the streets. Check out Westchester. There's some neighborhoods there are just mind-blowing. Um, don't, don't too quickly go rushing by the decorations on the tree and all of their intricate individual wonder. Don't ignore the snowflakes when they come. Uh, don't neglect to stop and, and look at individual snowflakes. Don't rush past the sound of the Christmas carols playing on the music at the mall. Because all of this will be gone soon enough. Don't pack man your way through life this season. Okay? Don't Pac-Man your way past the ages your kids are right now or the unrepeatable wonder and mystery and miracle that your friends and your family members are now. Don't rush past the fact that you inhabit today a very amazing body. It may be worn in places, but it is still quite spectacular and chances are it's not going to get better. Enjoy it. Enjoy this thing, this gift of grace God has put in your box today. Enjoy it now. Enjoy the truth that you, with all of your sin and struggles, 
You, with all of your blemishes and weaknesses, you, with all of your foibles and fears and your failings, are still a prize considered by Jesus so worthy. He'd become a man. He'd leave eternity and become a man to take hold of it and give his life to save it. Whatever you do, don't let your consciousness of what is behind you or what is in front of you blind you to what is so very good right now in your hands. Before you rush on, sit with the box of blessing, marvel at it, munch on its goodness, find yourself filled with a bit more gratitude and a bit more contentment and a bit more peace than when you entered into the season. But I don't want to kid you that that is going to be an easy thing to do. Because all of us are very aware that sometimes the box in our hands will not seem to hold anything that looks even closely approximating blessings, things that are good. And, and every single week, I hear the stories. I talk with the person who's losing their loved one um, to cancer, to the one who's just got the word that the spouse is moving out, to the one who's discovered the kid is on drugs, to the one who's lost the job. I talk every week, just like you do, to people who live with a real-life set of experiences that are hard to see as blessings in any way. And in his wonderful book, Plan B, when God doesn't show up the way you thought he would, author Pete Wilson asks a very realistic question on this subject. He says, do you remember the day when you discovered your life wasn't going to turn out quite the way you thought. It happens to everyone sooner or later, he says. All of us have had dreams and wishes and goals and expectations that, for a variety of reasons, have not come to fruition. Plans fizzle, expectations come to nothing, trusted people let us down or we let ourselves down. Dreams shatter or slip away. Plan A comes to an abrupt stop. Has it happened to you, he asks. And you don't have to raise your hand this time. But has it happened to you? It certainly happened for Mary. It definitely happened for Mary. Because when we meet her in Luke chapter 1, at the start of verse 26, she is a 15-year-old girl. She is in the prime of life, and she is healthy and happy and footloose, and fortunately not fancy-free. There's a man in her life, a slightly older guy that's taken quite a hankering. They're sort of like the characters in Twilight. There's love in the air between these two. And, and Mary is hungering and thirsting now for all of the normal things. She, she's going to get married. She's hungering for that. She's going to get married to Joseph. She's going to have a delightful white wedding with all of her loved ones smiling at how normal and beautiful this is. She's going to have Joseph's baby eventually, you know, after they'd gotten settled in and 
things had sort of gotten uh, uh, fixed up, they would have a baby then at an appropriate time. They would settle down in Nazareth for one of those blissfully peaceful, ordinary lives. They would watch their kids grow up, and they would see them, endow them with a bevy of grandchildren, and they would all live happily ever after. This was plan A. This was Mary's plan A. And then the angel Gabriel shows up. And he reaches out and he takes the box with the tag marked plan A and he takes it away from her and he sets it down and he sort of goes and he passes her this other box that reads plan B on the uh, tag. And it means Mary's going to have a very unexpected child. Um, From her vantage point at the moment, ill-timed child. Joseph will not be the father, physically speaking. The family and the friends are going to be confused, right? There will not be a white wedding. There will not be a peaceful, ordinary life. They will be fleeing to Egypt shortly to avoid a homicidal maniac dressed up as a king who wants to kill this particular child. Mary will spend years on the road walking from place to place with her son. And a sword will pierce her soul, she's told a little while later, as she watches him one day die upon a cross. She will not get to be a grandmother in the conventional sense, but she will get to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And here, I think, at this particular moment, is where we see something extraordinary about this 15-year-old girl. And something from which I think I, for one, maybe you too, can draw a lot of inspiration. Mary has a belly just like you and me, in a sense. She has a natural appetite for the fulfillment of her plan A, just like you and I do. But way down deep in the belly of this young woman, way down deep in what we now call the gut, you know, that that fundamental place of, of orientation in life, way down deep, there is this even stronger belly rumble going on for Mary. And to put it simply, I think you have to conclude that Mary hungers and thirsts after righteousness above all else. She really hungers and thirsts after righteousness. I mean righteousness here in the second sense of that biblical word. Remember I said the first meaning of righteousness is that which is good. Righteousness is what is good. You hunger for what is good. But it would be hard at this particular moment to see and experience what she was going to have happen to her as good. But the second meaning of the word is of righteousness of dikaiosune is what is right. That which is right. As in right justified, as in right up against, as in right alongside, as in right in alignment with the will of God. Righteousness is 
being upright against the direction of the will of God. What makes Mary so exceptional is that at 15 years old, she already gets this somehow. It's one of life's most important lessons. And some of us go way, way old to Santa Claus age before we even really, really get this. She understands that there are times in life when whatever is in the box is just not going to taste good. But it is still right. Okay? In fact, it may be, taste really bad, but it is so right. It is so right. It is in such alignment with God's plan. God, in fact, gives us what we need individually, as a community, as a nation. He gives us what we need to align our character better with His nature, or to align our lives better with His perfect will. He offers us this opportunity to realign ourselves, to be alongside of what He is doing. Even when we don't see the complete trajectory or the glorious outcome of what he's doing. He invites us into this alignment with him. He calls us to righteousness in that sense. And so despite the fact that it wrecks her plan A, I mean, she's not some ditzy little one who hasn't figured out this is going to be seriously difficult time ahead of me. In spite of the fact it wrecks her plan A, Mary embraces plan B because she senses it's God's plan A. It's always been God's plan A. Mary knows who she is. I am the Lord's servant, she says. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me. May it be to me. As you have said, or according to your word. I think it is amazing what God did in the way of blessings. Obviously through the life of this woman, but also in the life of this woman. He filled Mary's belly with the child who became the hope and joy of the world. He filled her life with a significance, a peasant woman, no degrees, from the armpit of the world. He filled her life with a significance that inspires how many people still to this day? God filled Mary's family with Millions of spiritual grandchildren. You and I are just some of them. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. For they will be filled, says Jesus. Deeply satisfied will be those whose greatest longing is what God declares good and right. How can you and I let that be more true of us this Christmas? That's what I want to ask you in closing today. And just throw out a couple ideas. First, forget what wasn't in yesterday's box, in the last box we got. Forget about it. 
Don't obsess over what may be in some other box out there underneath the tree. Focus and feed instead on the blessed goodness of what you hold in your hands. Really get to know it this season. And on the goodness of who holds you in his hands. Be like Mary, who, who when everything was craziness, right? Shepherds and wise men coming and going and animals munching and doing what comes after munching and crepe. We're told in the midst of all of that, she stops and treasures up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Ponder the goodness of God to you, and he will fill you with a greater measure of that peace and that gratitude and that contentment that all of us need. Secondly, hunger and thirst to be aligned with God's will. To be aligned with God's will, even if it isn't your plan A. Hunger and thirst to be right where God has you now. Hunger and thirst for that. To be right where God has you now. Because God is sovereign. There is a righteousness and a rightness to where he has you now. And what he is doing in and around you now. And what he has given you for now. And what he has told you up to now. There's a rightness about that. Consume that truth. Let it be a source of peace and contentment for you, and you will be filled with more hope than you may have started with. And finally, every time your belly growls in the days ahead, you know, it begins to ache and to long. You feel this restlessness for what's not there in your life. Finally, remember that your yearnings are a blessing themselves because they are driving you towards him who is the ultimate blessing. Mark Buchanan writes, God made us this way. He made us to always be hungry for something we can't get, to always be missing something we can't find, to always be disappointed at some level with what we receive. For as St. Augustine once remarked 15 centuries ago now, and I'm going to paraphrase him, God has given us a holy discontent. That discontent in you at some level is holy. Because the belly of our being is always going to yearn. It's always going to hunger and thirst. Until it is completely and finally filled up with him. So pray the ancient prayer of the church at Advent. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Heavenly Father. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, fill me up. Come, fill us all up. Come, fill us and use us so that we can help fill the world with your presence. Come, Lord Jesus, today. Amen.